Hello everyone and welcome to Women Decode STEM season 2. I am your host Neha Savanor and in this season I will be talking to entrepreneurs from around the world. These visionaries have remarkable journeys that they will be sharing with us. Dr. Quinn Wang is an ophthalmologist and the founder of Quadrant Eye, a telehealth platform for conducting remote eye exams. I met Dr. Wang on a social platform and was really drawn by how candid her posts were. That's when I told myself I need to have this conversation with her. Whether it's in the tech world or medicine or in the startup world, women and minorities face similar issues, and I hope this conversation gives you the courage to keep going and the hope that things will change in the future. Hi Dr. Wang, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope things are okay on your side. Yeah, um San Francisco has done relatively okay on the COVID front, but we all know that the information and data about transmission um are quite limited, so it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. For sure, COVID is not going anywhere. Yeah, it's going mm-hmm. to be a while before we see the vaccines in place. Talking about healthcare, when did you decide to do medicine and more specifically when did you decide to get into ophthalmology? Oh, wow. So going way back. Um so I actually was an English major in college. Uh I really enjoyed the humanities and creative writing. I actually come from a medicine background. My dad is a physician. He's an endocrinologist. He's actually an MD PhD. So, uh I was exposed to that from a young age and fought against it. But in college, I realized that if I really wanted to make a difference in another person's life, medicine is the way to do it. And Uh, I figured that having a humanities background, specifically in English literature, could only help, and it has incredibly. Um, it has helped me write my personal statements. It's helped me communicate with both my colleagues and my patients. And in terms of navigating tough moral. and ethical situations it has been beneficial as well so anyone who's considering a humanities degree i highly recommend it yeah that's a unique combination <laughs> as for why i decided to go into ophthalmology i'm biased i think that vision is the most valuable sense and uh particularly i am very much into the visual arts and have done some graphic design in the past as well and so have usually have uh, typically paid attention to all this eye related stuff and when i learned about ophthalmology which is not an obvious specialty to a lot of people typically in med school you have to have a proactive interest in ophthalmology and most people who have that interest then go on to pursue like a 2 to 4 week rotation in ophthalmology it's not very much at all 
So what I think is great about ophthalmology is that it's got a mix of everything. So you have time in clinic and you have time in the OR. And our most common surgery is cataract surgery, which is incredibly gratifying. And we spend all of residency, that's uh, three years of straight ophthalmology, and preceding that is one year of either internal medicine or surgery. I think current programs have revamped that model a little bit, and they're moving toward a four-year residency where ophthalmology gets incorporated much early on to your training. It takes the bulk of your training to get really good at cataract surgery. And then once you're able to do it, it's a matter of 10 minutes and you make a huge difference in somebody's life. Yeah, I've had, I've had several of my family members undergo the cataract surgery and they all mentioned how quick and laid back the procedure was. So I'm sure the surgeon needs to be well trained to perform the procedure. Most people in their lives are going to experience cataract surgery. I tell my patients that getting cataracts is like getting wrinkles. Everyone's going to get them. And at some point, it's not clear the timeline for everyone because there are a variety of factors. But at some point, the cataracts are going to become visually significant. And then cataract surgery becomes a topic of discussion. So can you tell us a little more about your startup, Quadrant Eye, and what exactly it does? So Quadrant Eye is essentially a remote eye exam interface. It allows providers to access objective information from patients remotely. So patients can open up the interface and put in the chief complaint, for example, red eye, and then put in elements to describe the red eye. What makes it better? What makes it worse? How long has it been going on? And couple that with objective exam findings. For example, visual acuity, color perception, retinal distortion via the AMSR grid, and things like that. So you, uh, as the provider using Quadrant I, see all of this information from the patient and sometimes patients will upload a photo through Quadrant Eye. So you have all of this objective information. You see what the patient's eye looks like. You have a really good idea of what's going on before even hopping on the phone with the patient or initiating a, vi a video call or even before the patient comes into the office. So it's a powerful tool that increases efficiency, increases patient satisfaction, and um, makes billing for telehealth as well as hybrid tele and in-office visits, much easier. And I actually no longer practice without it. It's gotten my standard telemedicine visit down from 45 minutes to like three to five. And what makes us unique is we give a copy of the exam to the patient for their personal records so they don't have to jump through the hoops of requesting uh, the office visit, you know, like a signed form that gets faxed back and forth. I really believe in data transparency and if it's your health information, you should have access to it. How did you come up with the idea for Quadrant Eye? Was it during the lockdown period when your patients were unable to visit the clinic or had you started working on it much earlier? 
So I've always been interested in how technology can be used to streamline healthcare because there's a lot of redundant steps that could easily be automated, but there's also a lot of complexity within the healthcare industry structure, red tape, inertia, and uh, solutions like this are hard to implement, especially if you don't understand what it's like to take care of a patient on a day-to-day basis. And for me, uh, I practice out of San Francisco, and in San Francisco, shelter-in-place orders went down on March 17th, and the American Academy of Ophthalmology recommended that eye clinics close to because uh, a lot of our procedures are elective and it was unclear if COVID was spread by like conjunctiva in addition to the other presumed mucous membrane roots. And I was kind of recognizing that COVID might be a problem for us, for ophthalmologists and uh, optometrists pretty much all eye care providers, because we historically have relied on in-office equipment. We never bother to come up with alternatives because it was hard to predict that something like COVID would happen, although it's not that surprising that um, we would someday be needing to provide care remotely, right? Because coming to a doctor's office is a pain. You have to take off work and then you have to find parking and then you have to wait for other patients to be worked up and then you have to be worked up by the technician and then you wait to see the doctor and, uh, you know, it's it can turn into like a three or four hour ordeal. So um, I realized that we would be kind of screwed. And I was thinking how unfortunate it was that in eye care, we don't have any way to get objective data from patients. Before all of this COVID stuff, if you were to call me and say, doctor, I have a problem with my eye, and we initiated a, a video visit like this, I wouldn't be able to really tell what was going on because I, number one, wouldn't know your visual acuity, which is one of the vitals of ophthalmology. It's like heart rate, you know, heart rate, blood pressure. Um, So I wouldn't know your visual acuity. I wouldn't have the level of magnification and resolution I need when looking at your eye to see if there's any inflammation, right? Unless there was something really obviously wrong with your eye, I could only make a best guess. And that's what I went through with my very first telemedicine patient on March 20th. The two of us spent 45 minutes together. Uh, When we first started the call, he described his symptoms. And I thought to myself, and I said very frankly to him, I cannot be sure what's going on because I don't know your vision. I don't know your eye pressure. I don't know if your vision is distorted. And so I asked him to Google various test maneuvers that are available on the internet. Like we tried um, a vision chart, but with vision charts, you have to be standing a very specific distance away from the chart. And then we looked up Amsler grids and then we looked up color plates and uh, he humored me. (laughs) Uh, And after that visit, he was, he thanked me for being so thorough and I felt really good because I had, I was pretty sure that nothing serious was happening, but only because we jumped through all those hoops. So after that visit, I thought to myself, these are our tools that we use to test patients' 
eye vitals in clinic. Now the, Sel the Snellen chart, Amsler grids, Ishihara plates. So these are clinically validated tools and they're available piecemeal on the internet in various forms and um, various levels of resolution, DPI. Why don't we just gather all that together? And so on March 21st, the day after that visit, I started building the prototype and thinking about what made sense in terms of having a true tele-eye workflow. Um, I say tele-eye because I want to include ophthalmologists and optometrists. There has historically been some tension between the two specialties, but uh, where I trained, it's always been really collegial in, in my practice in San Francisco. I view them as an integral part of the team, and so um, there's a lot that optometrists help us with, and many of them um, have taught me things and will continue to teach me. So they, they certainly deserve to be included. So that was a really long way of saying that I noticed a specific patient care problem and built my own solution. And because of my longstanding interest in technology and how it can be used to improve healthcare, I knew that um, it was very important for a physician to do this, a physician to establish the tele-eye workflow um, because there's a long, long, long history of technology and medicine butting heads, largely because technologists think that they know how to solve problems in healthcare and develop solutions that just don't work and make sense. And that causes distrust from healthcare providers, which then further exacerbates the irritation that technologists might have. But anyway, I, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement, obviously, and, uh, but also a ton of potential. It's a really exciting time. It feels weird to say that because we're in a pandemic and we're still in the first wave, but, um, yeah, there's, there's some pretty cool stuff happening in terms of healthcare innovation. Yeah, I get your take on this. Uh, being a technologist, I have explored the current startup scene in the tech world. Um, and I see a lot of innovations are being made in the intersection of healthcare and tech right now. Given that we need rapid innovations to ease the pain of doctors, we also need to clearly understand what is the right solution that the doctor needs. Yeah, I actually advise a lot of founders who come to me with questions about how to approach the healthcare industry. And the questions I get are just so clearly illustrative and indicative of the lack of understanding, which is troubling, but it's also good that they're asking for advice, right? But this shows if you don't have the basic knowledge of how things work in healthcare, how can you know 
the best way to solve a doctor's problem. And if you've not taken care of a patient before, especially over and over, over again in a clinical setting, whether that be in a clinic or on the hospital wards, how are you going to implement your solution in a way that makes sense and it's not cumbersome? And um, just I, I just think having really early communication with a healthcare provider, doesn't have to be a physician, could be a nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, will save founders a lot of time, energy, and money. Um, so I, that's what I would recommend. You know, if you're a technologist and you have this awesome idea for how to fix healthcare, for example, decentralized EMR, uh, please know that we've all had this idea and there's a reason it hasn't been implemented because there's a lot of intricacy and maybe your version of a decentralized EMR looks very different from mine. Um, and the features that you think I want are very different from the ones I actually want. Another thing to keep in mind is um, knowing and complying with all the regulations in the healthcare sector. So for a startup, how hard is it to get started um, keeping all of these regulations in mind? There are, and the obvious one that people know about is HIPAA, which protects patient privacy and um, uh, is tricky. And there's, if you're trying to do research, you have to go through institutional review boards, IRBs. And if you're in industry, it becomes very unclear which aspects of HIPAA you have to adhere to and which not. And then when we're talking about telemedicine, that is extremely interesting because the regulations are constantly in flux as COVID is, like the pattern of COVID is still unknown, right? So there has been a CMS waiver that allows us to practice telemedicine and bill various codes that we have not been able to bill before and these codes apply to groups of patients that prior to this did not could not have access to telemedicine so like what that means for providers wanting to give remote care and for patients who need it but cannot leave their homes or are too afraid because they don't want to increase COVID exposure and transmission is that the telemedicine space is very promising, very wide open, but I already, like you mentioned, I already noticed a lot of startups that are happening, telemedicine space, but their products just don't make sense. Yeah, telemedicine is hot, telemedicine, also is here to stay. It's not a fad. Um, and there's just a lot to consider. A cool app might not work for an 80-year-old grandma who doesn't have internet. A self-contained virtual eye platform that's like its own EMR is 
not going to be adopted by physicians who are already overburdened by several dif different EMRs and don't want to deal with another closed system that won't talk to other clinics or they have to learn and there's more clicks. So um, I understand the enthusiasm and I like it and I think there's a whole ton of potential. It's just, you know, it's reflective of general trends in technology and how, how they approach this like trillion dollar healthcare pie that everyone wants a part of, but not all of it is about money. A lot of it is, but at the end of the day, there are people involved and um, already in the course of these three months, I've seen people go blind from not being able to see their eye doctors. It's serious business. It's not, it's not a free-for-all and a chance to build a unicorn, although that would be awesome. It's, it's a, vision's really important and people have gone blind. And so my interest is in making our remote exam, the Quadrant Eye remote exam, as easy to use as possible for patients and providers alike so we can mitigate these like exacerbations of chronic eye problems like glaucoma and um, help triage emergencies more effectively. Talking about the startup world, the stats clearly show that there's a huge gender gap in the number of male and female founders, and even more so for um, people of color and women of color. What is your opinion um, on how we can change these stats? So the two of us met through Alpha, which is a community of more than 20,000 women working in tech. And I got inv in involved with Alpha um, a little over a year now when I was still in residency training and thinking seriously about going the startup route. And at that point, I had zero Silicon Valley connections. I didn't know what I was doing. I, um, I thought uh, a web developer knew machine learning, like all of them just knew that. That's how little I knew. <laughs> But anyway, I was like thinking, okay, I really need a community of people, preferably women, who can help like, give me advice and um, who can be my network once I make the leap that I was thinking about making into startup world. And so actually I found out about Alpha on LinkedIn and uh, I joined and started posting and really loved the community. And I posted so much that uh, Kadron and Quan um, Alpha co-founders asked me to be a community manager and I of course said yes uh, it was super exciting and from there I met even more wonderful women who mentored and advised me and um, became friends with some really awesome individuals like yourself in being a community manager and moderating the posts I could see recurrent problems that women in tech were facing, whether it be being the only woman on an all-male team and being talked over and disparaged, or like not being able to get your foot in the door because you are a woman. 
and feeling like pretty helpless as a female founder because only 2% of you know, venture capital money goes to female founders. It's really eye-opening. Have to say not that surprising because there are similar issues in medicine. A ton of sexism and discrimination and abuse in, in that realm. So uh, it is something that I care a lot about and pay attention to. I I'm obviously biased, but there's a lot of data out there that suggests that female-run companies perform really well, not better than um, male-run companies. So I'm not particularly worried, and Quadrati is doing so well that funding is not an issue. But I know that as we scale, I will run increasingly into the barriers that I anticipate that I've read about and I myself have experienced, whether that be talking to investors or talking to other male founders, interacting with tech bros. It's difficult. (laughs) It's difficult as a woman It's difficult as a female founder. It is difficult as a female founder who is a minority because people see me and they make assumptions about my personality. Like I'm very vocal about equal consideration for female founders. I want to be an advocate for change, for gender equality, as well as racial equality. And it's something that I have to make a conscious effort. It's tiring, but I really care. It's just unfair the way things are now. And if no one speaks up, then things will continue this way. I'm a cataract surgeon. At the end of the day, like I have more skills than a lot of you do who are trying to disparage me. I love what you said. (laughs) Uh, It's so true. You have to make a conscious effort. And no matter what people say, you have to stand by what you think is right. That's what I noticed about you on Alpha. Uh, You were so candid about posting on various topics and you were sharing um, your experiences very honestly. And I think that's what helps other women to express their feelings as well. Especially for women of color and minorities, this is much needed to share our experiences with each other um, in order to find support and validation. Thanks. Yeah, I remember you telling me about your experience. And unfortunately, it's not unusual. I'm very used to working with a bunch of white guys. Medicine is dominated by white guys. So is tech. So is finance. Like every every industry, the privilege of being part of the population that controls things or holds majority is very powerful. There's still conversation about whether or not that privilege even exists, which I think is ridiculous. Um, So having these candid conversations is an important part of making people realize the privilege that they have and also the various difficulties that women in tech, women in medicine face. I am fine being candid if there is 
backlash. It has, at least in my case, been minimal. I have had to have difficult conversations with various men that I work with and various men that have wanted to work with me in context of startup. For those who don't understand or who I can tell don't care to, not very interested in working with you. Thank you so much for continuing to do what you are doing right now because not everybody is willing <laughs> to use their voice. So just wanted to say that we are here to stand by you and support you in this um, fight for equal consideration. Thank you so much. Like I know, I know a lot of women feel the same way, but don't necessarily feel brave enough to say it or can't find the words to say it. I also know how that feels. It took me a long time to get to this place where I felt comfortable writing those posts and saying the things that I'm saying to you today and in other forums. And I actually think my English and humanities background has helped me a lot in terms of being able to frame my thinking you know, my experiences as a woman in tech running my startup have shown me that I'm capable of a lot. You know, being a founder, you have to wear several zillion different hats. Like, I maintain the website. I did the logo. I do, like, sales and messaging. I uh, built the prototype. I, like, still post on Alpha and do a bunch of other stuff. Um, in, in addition to social justice things. So um, learning to manage my time, but also being able to explain to myself why something is important um, has helped my confidence a lot and has in fact made me a much better doctor. And I'm more confident in my decision making. And when something goes wrong in the OR, when I'm doing surgery, um, I can think to all of the different things that I've done outside of the OR and then execute the things I need to execute. So it's been good. The last question I have for you today is, how can we ensure that more women of color and minorities are encouraged and supported in order to reach leadership positions in tech industry or other STEM in industries? So this is something I've struggled with a lot. I wouldn't say that I have that many very strong mentors who are women of color, whether that be in medicine or tech. And I spent a lot of my life being very unsure of how to act and how to ask for help. And this was so painful to me, especially in residency where I very badly needed a mentor and there were these female ophthalmologists. Like ophthalmology is unique in that it is, you know, there's a really good distribution of men and women. But like, I really, really wanted a mentor, but I was so afraid of someone saying no that I never asked and I just floundered around. I didn't know what I was doing. Just felt terrible about it. And then when I thought about going into tech, I said to myself, this is going to be different. I'm going to be different. I am just going to ask for what I need. And the first step was 
looking for a community like Alpha. As soon as I found it, I was like, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to post. And if people don't respond to that, that's fine. At least I know I tried. I guess that's my way of saying be very active and thoughtful about what you're looking for. Like for me, I really much, I really very much wanted mentors. That's a difficult thing for people at any stage of their career. Um, So I started with clarifying to myself that I wanted first a network of like-minded women. And from there, I knew that I could find mentors, but like making the leap from having no network to having awesome mentors I knew was just too much of a gap between expectation and reality. So number one, setting a reasonable goal to work toward, whether that be, I want to know one or two more women in tech that I can really speak with honestly going to a place like Alpha, or even reaching out to people on LinkedIn, worst thing that can happen is that no one responds. Best thing that can happen is that someone responds and says, here's my Calendly link, and then you hit it off. For me, uh, someone reached out to me on Alpha about Flick, which is like this portal for female founders to connect with really ambitious young women who are still in school. I don't know exactly the demographic, but I made myself available on there and I have connected with already two young women who've asked for my mentorship. And so there are people like me who make themselves available through platforms like Alpha, LinkedIn, and Flick. Not being afraid to reach out to people and not taking it personally when someone doesn't respond. But when someone does respond, recognizing that that person's time is really valuable and always kind of following up with a thank you. And if you got advice, evidence that you at least tried to, you know, execute some of that advice. That goes a long way toward building a mentorship relationship. That brings us to the last part of the conversation. Are you ready for the rapid fire round? Okay. Okay, first question. What is your favorite hobby? Skiing. Second question. One advice you would give your younger self? Be less afraid about what you say because most people don't care. Last question. Mondays or Fridays? I guess I'll say Friday because um, at least now there's some, there's still some expectation of getting a break on the weekend. Although since, since starting the startup and since COVID, um, the days have all run into each other and it really doesn't matter what day of the week it it is. If I'm not in clinic, I'm working on quadrant I and the hours just fly by. So that was a great conversation, Dr. Wang. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Women Decode STEM. If you're new here, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on iTunes. 
It helps me get my message out to a wider audience. All the social links to my guests are in the show notes. I will talk to you next week. Until then, I hope you have a great day and the rest of the week ahead. Bye.